Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof on News Talk. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Coming up on this week's programme, life. What exactly is it, anyway? The great Carl Zimmer attempts to answer. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me is Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and Dr. Lara Duncan. You're both very welcome. Lara, our first story is about becoming frail. It is, absolutely. Um, and it's it's something we all know about. Um, and it's something I've seen in my own life where you see relatives who seem quite healthy and, and really continuously healthy. And then there seems an almost precipitous drop um, and they are still, you know, very much alive and, and, and you know, going through life. But they seem to become suddenly very frail. And I've seen it a lot in the hospital. And we've never really understood why there is this precipitous drop. Um, but there's new research that's just been published in Nature, which is trying to figure out why. And they believe it could be related to what we call our hematopoietic stem cells. These are the cells within our bodies and usually within our blood or our bone marrow that can become any of the cells within our body. And they are really important cells. So what they did was they took 10 people of every age from the age of zero to 81 and they looked at their stem cells. So they took some of them for the neonates, for instance, they took cord blood, they took blood from some people from the bone marrow, they took peripheral blood and they did a, a, a whole huge genetic screening to look at their stem cells. And what they found was that in younger people, they had huge amounts of different clonal cells going around their body to make up their white blood cells. So people of a younger age range would have anywhere from 20,000 to 200,000 different types of these white blood cells circulating around in their body. Um, And this is anyone on the average under the age of 65. Now, that's also a big range, 20,000 to 200,000, but it's a huge amount of, of these different types of stem cells. What they did was then they looked at people over the age of 65 um, and especially then over the age of 75 where it reduced even further. And they found that about half of their blood cells came from only 10 to 20 distinct stem cells. So going from 20 to 200,000 distinct cells to only 10 to 20. And they found that these were often being pushed through by mutations that were causing essentially problems. So these stem cells um, mutated like all our cells do. You know, we all acquire mutations every year throughout our lives, but these were bad mutations and they became quite aggressive and they became the dominant cells. And they feel this is the reason why people of an older age have more risk of blood cancers, more risk of frailty and more risk of uh, lots of different diseases. Are we supposed to be living till 70 from a natural point of view? So we're absolutely not. And I find this very interesting. I always think about teeth. I lament the the inability of my teeth to survive. And I have all these fillings and I keep cursing my teeth. I'm even missing a tooth from a misspent youth, I might add. But I always think, why? What, why? doing crack? <laughs> not, not quite that bad. Having crack. Um, for anyone who's not Irish listening to this, I hope they understand that. But but I always thought, why do our teeth not last? It, it Surely it's easy. But it's because we were never meant to last this long. And there's all these problems that come with getting older. Really, we were never meant to last much beyond reproductive age. And reproductive age used to be our teens. So we were never really supposed to live past 30, certainly 40 at the oldest. And that's exactly why everyone on this radio show shouldn't even be here. We're all a bit over the hill, guys. Um, Speak for yourself. Uh, (laughs) Shane, our second story has to do with so-called quantum teleportation. Yeah. um, Did you like my voice there? I did. It's finally here, Jonathan. 
the science of Star Trek is finally with us. And I know you're very excited about that. Yes, I was I've born. banned Star Trek references from this program. Well, as with every radio program, you always pay attention to what the producer wants. And I know your <laughs> producer is a, is a huge fan. So, yes, this, this is work that's that's being done in Delft. Now, we've seen a quantum entanglement stories on the show before. This is where you have two things that are brought together. They entangle, right? They're typically photons of light. You can separate them um, to an infinite distance. When you measure one, you instantly know uh, information at the other end. And that travels faster than light. And Einstein called it spooky action at a distance because it exceeded the universal speed limit, which is the speed of light. And what we've seen here in work from Delft uh, this week, published in Nature, is a quantum network. So instead of sending information from A to B using teleportation, they have a three-point network, the three nodes, A, B, and C. And they've been able to entangle A with B, B with C, and then send a, uh, a message through uh, quantum teleportation from node C back to node A. And that's the first time that's ever happened. Remember, it all relies on quantum bits, as opposed so to... So nothing technically passes through wires, right? I mean, there's no, there's nothing that, there's no information traveling, so to speak, from one place to another. It sort of disappears in one place and appears in the other. That is the weirdest thing about this technology. It is, absolutely. And it's all down to this idea of entanglement. And if we can get this right, that it's based on qubits and 10 qubits in a, in a quantum computer has the same computing power as 20 billion regular bits because of something called superposition. So instead of a, a bit being either a one or a zero, it can, have, it can have a multitude of options in between those things. And that allows you for much more computational power. And so what, what happens here is uh, you're sending a message from C to A. You, you, all of these things are connected through the network. And if you're able to kind of create your message in uh, node C, they call it Charlie. Um, so it could be a one, a zero, or lots of things in between. And because it is entangled through the network, once you measure what's happening at C, information instantly pops out at A. And so when you and put those two things together, you have two bits of information that come together to create the whole. And so that kind of coming together allows you to encrypt. And that's really where the money is going to be here, right? Because you, ha you have a now a secure way of putting information together that is impossible to interfere with. Because there's, there's nothing traveling in between the two points. And did you say that if you separate these by distances, the information travels faster than the speed of light? It doesn't travel. It, the well, information, yeah, but, yeah, it appears. But it appears. Yeah. So, so like when you think about those two things, one, that this information disappears and then appears in another place. And if you were going at the speed of light, you wouldn't be able to travel that fast. You are talking about some crazy sort of technology that, of course, would defy any sort of decryption because you need, you need to be able to intercept it somewhere. Absolutely. And so we've seen this in satellites now between the, the Earth and space is a great way to send information back without anyone spying on it. But of course, there is the great paradox. If you get the information at the other end, the only way you could find out is by sending a regular message whose maximum speed is the speed of light. So you're limited by our capacity to talk to each other ultimately. Lara, you heard me expressing the emotion surprise there, which is what our next story is about. Yeah, so I was that... actually... <laughs> 
That was br- that was a what an Good intro, segue. Johnny. Yeah. God, you're you're really earning those big books. Thank you. Um, I was going to say this is quite a complex story, but then I heard Shane, so I'm going to get back in my box. Um, so <laughs> this is not nearly as complex a story as what Shane just talked about, but it is from your friends over in MIT, who you'll be talking about later. And this is a study that they did on mice looking at the neuromodulator noradrenaline. So we have things called neurotransmitters, which send signals from cell to cell in our brain. But we have these things called neuromodulators, which send a broader signal. They kind of sweep across across certain parts of our brain. And some of them, for instance, dopamine or serotonin are very famous and quite well known. We know all about the role of dopamine and things like reward. But the role of neuroadrenaline isn't quite as well known. And they did this research in mice and, and it's it's quite complex. So I'll try and distill down the two main things that they found out. So what they did is they taught mice to listen to a high frequency tone or a low frequency tone. If they hear high frequency, they're to press a lever and they get a reward, which is water. Very exciting. If they hear the low <laughs> frequency, they have to not press the lever. And if they do anything wrong, they get an unpleasant puff of air in their face. So what they found was when they looked at a place called the locus ceruleus, um, that that's the main place that produces noradrenaline, that they got a big burst of noradrenaline out when they did the correct movement at the start. So if they press the the um, lever for the high frequency, then they get their burst. But what they did was they gave them the, the proper sound, but at different volumes. And the mice were a bit unsure. So when it was nice and loud and they could hear it clearly, they were like, look, that's high frequency, press the lever, done. When it was lower volume, they couldn't hear it as well. The mice were a bit like, oh, not sure what to do, not sure what to do. <laughs> and what they did was then they cut off the locus ceruleus. They stopped it from functioning. They stopped the noradrenaline. And these mice just hadn't got the the proverbial mice balls to press the lever. So without the noradrenaline, they weren't able to take this risk on a reward. And it was really interesting to find that that was, was really down to this neuromodulator. The other thing they found at the other end, which is beyond cruel, is that when they went through all of this system and they did it right and they did it right over and over again, at the very, very end, the mice were expecting to receive either the reward or the punishment. And if they mixed it up, if they gave them the wrong one, so the mice did the right thing, but they got the wrong, wrong, uh, I suppose, reward or punishment, they also got a huge burst of this noradrenaline. So it's supposed to be, uh, what we think now, it's helping them to code for surprise. So they're learning from surprise. So if they get their little drop of water in response to being bold or their little puff of air in response to being good, then they're helping, it's helping to help help them learn from this surprise. Fantastic. Um, I'm terrified the idea that school systems could end up being built around this. <laughs> and the treat was water. God help the poor mice. Probably sugary water though, was it not? It, no, I think it was just water, which makes me think they must have been very thirsty. But anyway, look, that's a whole other show. Um, Shane, her final story is about decisions. It is. And it turns out that mullers are no more accurate than quick thinkers when it comes to making decisions. Or so says uh, the work of the Riken Social Decision Science Lab in Japan. And I'm putting on my sceptical hat for this story. No but, surprise uh, there, Shane. <laughs> well, it's just It's well worn at this stage. It is, Jonathan. Oh, Shane. Uh, you know. So people were asked to make choices. Um, they, and they were asked to make choices based on things like the, what they prefer Right. So do you want this one or do you want that one? That kind of choice. And then they were asked to make choices to assess situations are like they were shown dots on a screen are more than moving left or more than moving right. And they found that people who were 
action orientated, that's people who just make quick decisions, versus people who are state orientated, those who like to kind of hesitate and dwell on it, that there was no difference in accuracy. The only difference they found was confidence. So that that is this story. To me, this seems that seems a little obvious, but it sort of negates the fact that most decisions are made in a social context, right? So you don't make decisions in bubbles. You're completely influenced by the environment and people around you. So like, you know, whether you are hesitant or or not is going to be mediated by what's going on in your environment. So I don't know, like, because I, I would be well, worried. But aren't, there, but aren't there people who are very much imbued with their own sense of confidence? I mean, I think um, there was a, a study not so long ago about um, forecasters and they were predicting, you know, results of elections. And it was shown again that the people who were who then were asked to rate their confidence in their prediction were no better than the people who were like, this is what I think, but I really don't know. And so that, you know, your sense of self-confidence in the decision is often misplaced. You're just oh, completely. As as most people. Absolutely. That's completely true. It's just what happens when very confident people go around saying those things is other people say, oh, they must know something I don't know. And it influences you. Yeah. So. Um, that's what I would worry about these stories is that the, the, the next line from the researcher might be, therefore, we need to increase everyone's confidence. Like, I, I, I you know, I'd be really worried about that. It's, surely it should be that we should encourage humility rather than uh, confidence. Like, listen to people and don't assume that you're like more stupid than they are. Yeah. Too much humility would also be a problem, though, and I, I wonder, wonder why it is I'm saying this. But uh, I mean, I mean, you do need to balance the two. I think if this, you know, you people do. are constantly checking themselves, then maybe less things get done um, in the. Well, time do you know what? Maybe, maybe the mediator here is expertise, right? So that, like, you, you, if if Lara comes in here and tells us something about medical science, I'm more likely to listen to her than you because <laughs> she's she's the medical doctor. You but know? he's I'll so confident. That. I'll give you he that. He is very confident. Yeah. <laughs> That's, I don't. That's... I don't do that. I used to do that I, when I was when I was twenty something. I used to do it all the time. I do not do that. Anymore. You have learned. And look, and learned. that's why we leave you know quantum entanglement stories to you, Shane. Exactly. I'll just leave that hanging. Doctor Shane Bergen from UCD and Doctor Lara Duggan. Thanks as always. Now, for centuries, stories about the origins of life have gripped us, while attempts to understand it have confounded us. For every metric we use to measure and qualify life, inevitably there's some microbe or animal that doesn't quite fit. So how do we answer this question? And what does it mean to be a living thing anyway? Well, Carl Zimmer, an award-winning New York Times columnist, sought to discuss that in his latest book. It's called Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive. He joins me now. Welcome to the program, Carl. Tell me about this this question, because you've been writing about animals and insects and viruses and all these sorts of living things for a very, very long time. How are you only coming to this question now, if you don't mind me asking? Well, it's one of those questions that's kind of in the back of your head uh, when you're writing about life. But uh, every now and then it kind of pushes itself to the fore. And, you know, every now and then when I would be writing about you know, some bacterium or, or a dinosaur or so on, you know, I might kind of, you know, broach the topic, ask a scientist, well, what, you're studying life, I mean, what's your definition of it? And then the conversation would get a little uncomfortable a lot of the times, <laughs> like the scientists would, would be like, well, I, I study dinosaurs, I, I don't want to get into that philosophy. Or if people did have definitions, they would just 
be different from the last scientist I spoke to. Someone would say, well, life is metabolism. And someone else would say, well, life is evolution. And so I, I just, after a while, I just got so fascinated with the fact that there seemed to be very little consensus. And then as I did some research, I realized, you know, there really, there really never has been. And uh, we're, we're not really getting any closer now. I mean, there literally are, you know, in the past few decades, there have been probably over 300 definition, published definitions of life, and they're not the same. And uh, so that really got me just fascinated with why is it that life is, is so hard to, to capture, to, to draw edges around. Let's talk about um, some of the things that don't fit neatly into the box. So uh, when I think of a living thing, I think of the three Fs. So um, feeding, flushing, and flirting. And, and to me, almost all, if not all, living things eat, produce waste, and re reproduce that that's but that's not the case for everything is that right well i mean let's take a, a rabbit one rabbit um just on its own let's say you have a rabbit at home and it's it leads a lonely life um there are no other rabbits it can reproduce with you wouldn't say that your rabbit is not alive right but but it can reproduce well uh, you know, it, it, what does it mean that it can't? Okay, like fine. Like let's 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 spay your rabbit. You know, so that it can't. <laughs> my point. My point being that if you right. you know if you say if you start if you talk about the things that life does and then something doesn't do it and then you say well maybe it could do it and then you know we, then you see how quickly we, things uh, can can fall apart and. You know, uh, another example, uh, um, uh, in a way, a more interesting example is um, that there are a lot of animals that um, go into what scientists sometimes call the third state of being between life and death. It's called cryptobiosis. And my favorite example is an animal called a water bear and uh, tardigrades. They're these little, little eight-legged animals that crawl around in the moss and such. You know, they're all over the place. I was wondering how long into this interview we'd get to tardigrades. It's much earlier than I thought, but I knew they would pop up. You know, it's <laughs> never too soon to talk about tardigrades, I think, because people, not everybody appreciates just how amazing they are. And if they get dehydrated or stressed or, and so on, like, it, it, they, they will start losing water. Um, and, you know, if, if you were to lose, you know, a third or half of your water, you'd be dead, you know, and, we, and if we poured a, a pitcher of water on top of you, you would not come back to life. You'd be gone. But that's not true for the tardigrade. What happens with the tardigrade is it, it actually converts um, itself into a kind of a glass, a kind of a glassy state. It basically locks itself into place. There's no metabolism going on inside of it. None. So it's unable to do one of the most fundamental things that, that we usually think of as being a hallmark of life. And if you pour water on the tardigrade after, say, 50 years or 100 years, it will start walking around again. So indeed, um, there are, for, for every um, list of things that you put together as an as a, as a absolute definition of life, there are going to be examples of things that don't follow the rules. Um, or, or what's even more interesting is there'll be cases where they exemplify some of those hallmarks and totally fall flat on others, um, like viruses, for example. Yeah, you've written about viruses many times in your life. Where do viruses fit into this idea of living? Because they are, um, they are very minimalist sort of creatures, aren't they? 
they are indeed. They are indeed. I mean, we have. I mean, first of all, they're incredibly tiny. Um, uh, you know, a thousandth of the size of of, of one of your cells. Um, they typically have very few genes. You know, we have uh, tens of thousands of, of genes. Um, this SARS-CoV-2 that causes COVID has less than 30 genes. So, uh, yeah, so they're, one of the hallmarks uh, that you hear over and over again in terms of evolution, uh, in terms of life is evolution. And the variants that are dragging out this pandemic are, are a classic example of evolution in action. If anything can evolve, it's viruses. However, um, we were just talking about metabolism. Viruses don't eat. They don't flush. You know, they don't feed. They don't flush. They, 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 they just don't do those things. Um, and so it's kind of remarkable that you can have something that can do one of the things that seems unique to life incredibly well and just doesn't do the other things at all. So what do you say about a virus? You say, well, it's half alive, like our language doesn't really work that well because we tend to think of life in a binary. It's either it's alive or it's not alive. Yeah, but I, I think it, it, I think alive is is it makes no sense as a term because of these reasons. Like you can't really say a virus is alive. I don't think uh, just because it 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 evolves. Well, uh, I mean, it's what's interesting to me is that. Um, you know, one day uh, I actually got two emails from virologists in the same day um, because I had been writing about viruses in life and they had read something I'd written. And in the morning, a virologist told me that, of course, viruses are not alive um, because they don't feed and so on. And any expert would be able to tell me that. And then in the afternoon, another uh, eminent virologist told me, of course, they're alive because we can only understand them. <laughs> in the way that we understand living things because they they are things that evolve through the fundamental ways that humans evolve. So, um, and that's in one day. So that gives you a sense of how unresolved and how unsettled um, not just viruses, but life in general is. And in a way, what makes life so interesting. You write about DNA in the book and the discovery of, of DNA by um, Watson Crick and, and, and Franklin, um, whose work contributed to that. Um, when um, we talk about DNA, is DNA a precursor for a living thing? Do all living things have DNA? Well, um, certainly pretty much everything that we here on Earth call alive has DNA as a as as its genetic molecule now there are some exceptions on the edge so we just talked about viruses there are you know viruses they're kind of alive maybe but certainly a, a virus like SARS-CoV-2 actually has RNA instead of DNA as its genetic molecule so you know there's already that already raises the possibility that maybe you know life doesn't need DNA, strictly speaking. And in fact, there are some theories that um, life on Earth began as cells of RNA, RNA molecules inside protocells. That's the, maybe that's how life started here. But there are certainly um, some biologists who argue that it's presumptuous for us to think that this particular combination uh, of nitrogen and carbon and other elements 
uh, arrayed in this particular shape that we call DNA, that that is the only way that uh, you could get something that we would consider alive. And there mm. are actually chemists who are trying to build alternate, um, you know, genetic molecules. Um, so, you know, we, uh, this is a kind of a big deal for NASA because, you know, if NASA spend, spends, you know, tens of billions of dollars to go to another planet, to a moon around another planet looking for life, you know, if we just only look for DNA, what happens if there are aliens floating around who use a totally different molecule and we entirely miss them because we just weren't looking for things other than DNA? So this is a, a, a really profound question. So it's hard to define what life is, but is it less hard to define what can't be life? For example, you, you talked about... Um, living things that may use different processes to be inverted commas living. I remember that um, a really embarrassing NASA story um, where there was uh, an announcement made about a potential, um, was it a microbe that used arsenic um, in its building blocks of life, so to speak. And, and because it used that in that way, as opposed to, I think, carbon or silicon, I can't remember what, what part it, it was rumored to have switched out. It turned out not to have done it um, in the end but is it easier to say if it does this it's not living well you know in in that case as you mentioned yeah there was there were some bacteria that were found um in uh california in, in an extreme sort of arsenic rich environment and um there was a very flashy announcement that uh some scientists claimed that it was using arsenic uh in in its dna and this would have been just you would have had to rewrite the textbooks because this is just a very, very strange violation of life on Earth as we know it. And that turned out probably not to be the case, that it's just just a bacteria that are able to survive in uh, water that's just totally laced with arsenic. Certainly, you know, chemists will say that there are certain combinations of elements that really, you know, just don't seem like they would be um, promising for life, put it that way. In other <laughs> right. words, you wouldn't be able to, you couldn't build very stable molecules with them. You know, the, the, the amazing thing about our DNA is that it is able to be incredibly complex to, to, to in, in effect, store a lot of information and do so throughout our lives and be able to be, be accurately copied to the next generation. Um, so, yeah, so they're, it's not like just any old uh, combination of chemicals can do that. But we don't, we, we can't say like, this is the list of the things that, that are the only things that can be uh, the basis of life. You also talk about death in the book. And I find this really fascinating that our definition of death um, in, on Earth, even when we talk even just about human beings is subjective on the culture in which you um you were in and in some countries you may be pronounced dead by a doctor where in other countries you might still be alive i'm wondering uh what you what you make of that and and, and where do you see the line between dead and alive uh so the history of of death and and how we define it is just as interesting as, as that history of, of life and this and was a particularly a challenge um, for physicians because you know they would they would have some you know patients where they were not really sure if they were 
dead or not? And so how would you figure that out? And so, you know, in the 1600s or the 1700s, there are all these, there were pamphlets where, you know, doctors would give their, you know, tried and true methods for really pinning down if someone was actually dead, if you weren't sure. So for example, a tobacco enema was considered a really good way to, you know, just nail this down because people <laughs> tended to react if, if they could. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, along with this, there was the, the issue of, well, what is it? What are we talking about when someone is dead? Um, so certainly in the 1600s and 1700s, you know, people would talk about life as uh, often they would refer to something that sounds rather mysterious to us, sort of a vital force. Um, and uh, no one could quite define what the vital force was, but they would say, well, that's what makes life different than non-life. And so if the vital force wasn't there, then that meant that you were dead. But then it became impossible to sort of track down where that vital force was and to measure mm -hmm. it being there or not. Um, and it, we have, as science has, has progressed, in a way we've kind of, we've made more problems for ourselves when it comes to death. Um, so for example, um, the, with the invention of, of the iron lung and ventilators, someone could, someone's lungs and heart and, and the rest of the body could continue to function even when their brain was so badly damaged that they could not make themselves continue to breathe. Actually, like, you know, doctors sort of felt like, well, this isn't really this isn't really life, um, you know, if, and, and so then actually in the 1960s, this led to the concept of defining death as brain death, you know, because like the cells in someone's body, when they're on a ventilator, their cells are still carrying out metabolism. They're clearing out the waste. Um, there are cases where people, you know, are able to, you know, there was a girl who went through, even went through puberty on, on a ventilator. So, um, so then really it becomes, what you start to realize is like, we have to define death by what's, what we consider important about life. It's not so much a, uh, some precise definition that's floating out there separate from us. It partly depends on what is important to us as human beings. Yeah. And, and, and an interesting side note, we did a story on LVADs, left ventricle assistant devices. And there are a number of um, people around the world currently walking, talking, uh, going about their daily business without a pulse. So that that doesn't define um, a, a a living thing either, because uh, some of these devices they use a sort of a spinning technology as opposed to a, a pump, and and so they they technically don't have a pulse. So I can see how it it gets really really tricky when science sort of comes along and replaces some things that we we thought really define what life is and what death is. Um, we have only really scraped the surface uh, of this book and it, it goes into uh, lots of different questions around life and death. I'm not going to ruin it um, and tell you whether or not Carl has in this book definitively defined life, but you could probably take a guess um, from our discussion. Carl Zimmer, author of Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Yeah, like that fascinates me. Our producer Aiden uh, joins us now. That fascinates me. This idea of um, not knowing when someone's dead, Aiden. Like that is like that's fascinating. That you could be, you know, you could have uh, no heartbeat and still be alive. You could, you know, you could 
have no brain activity and still be alive like there's there's lots of different definitions to different cultures and and when it, when it comes to things like transplantation which we've talked about earlier in one country they'd be you know ripping your lungs out uh, and another country they'd be saying hang on whoa yeah no it was actually ta- it was transplantation came to my mind as well when you were talking about it because uh reza our previous guest on transplantation was saying that they did some of those experiments with uh, xenotransplantation, not the pig heart one, but the earlier ones, on patients who he was sort of ambiguous as to whether they were alive or dead because it was uh. a similar situation. They were sort of, they were brain dead, but their body was still functioning and wow. metabolizing. And yeah, it's a, it's a very, it's a, it's a blurry line to say the least. Yeah, very, very interesting stuff. Um, right, last week we played you a lovely piece. Um, about uh, a young woman from Wales, 22 years old, who's always wondered who her father was. If you haven't heard it, listen back to it. It's called United by DNA. It's in the podcast feed. And uh, in the story, spoiler alert, we find that um, Elise gives a DNA sample to an ancestry website and eventually manages to track down her father and, and, and they meet. And it's an Irish man by the name of Colm. And what's lovely is he was just, it was just the right place, right time. And they're both thrilled to have found each other, which is just, you know, you roll a, di- roll a dice, you know, five times out of six, it's not going to go that way, I would imagine, or at least not as smoothly, but they are just thrilled to get to know each other. So it's fantastic and a lovely, heartwarming story for once. So we asked you about your experiences of, of looking for people. And we have this lovely email in from a chap. His name is uh, Paul O'Connor. And I'm going to read the whole thing. It is quite a long one, but it, it's very interesting. He says, my mother and her twin sister were born in Dublin in 1943, the result of an illegitimate liaison. An arranged adoption was quickly organised between two families for the expected child in the days before scans and so on. Luckily, when the second child arrived to com- Complete surprise by everyone. They were both adopted and kept together by the same family under the same arranged adoption. The birth mother, Josie, emigrated to the UK because of societal norms at the time. I've heard many stories like that, haven't we? I only discovered this when I was a young teen. Only years later, on querying the story, I was told that the natural father was a man called Paddy Moynihan, with a very specific spelling of the surname as opposed to A-H-A-N, it's N-I-H-N. We were told he was an alcoholic and that she refused to marry him and she may have, that he may have joined the British Army, Army and subsequently died in England. And that all became part of the family mythology. The birth mother, Josie, stayed in constant but distant contact with the twins through family relatives in Dublin, married in the UK, and the adult twins later learned that they had a half-sister. Three years ago, after watching an episode of Who Do You Think You Are, in which Judge Rinder exploded a personal family myth about his own uncle, I decided to find out what happened to this so-called grandfather and to build my own family tree, if for nothing more than just knowing our own family medical history. Not having any direct genealogical links to follow and being a student of military history, I began searching ancestry online and online military records for a potential candidate. And I found one. Patrick Moynihan came up on the first search. He had joined the Irish Guards in London in the 1940s, served in Northern Europe, won medals for valour on the attack towards Arnhem, Bridge Too Far movie, you may have seen it. He married, survived the war and retired to Cornwall where he later died. 
Finding him in a family tree on Ancestry, I reached out to the account owner, his grandson, who agreed that our stories aligned very closely and he even provided photos. This is really exciting because my adoptive grandfather had served most of his life in the equestrian school of the Irish Army and now it looked like my natural grandfather had served with distinction in World War II. And so on a cold winter afternoon in 2018, I found myself standing at a windswept grave in Cornwall. On returning to Dublin, I discovered my mother still has living maternal cousins, one of whom had actually met Paddy Moynihan as a very young girl when he and Josie were dating and long before the twins were born. She took one look at the photo that I had of him and said, that's not him. (laughs) (laughs) So I have to start all over again. The only way forward now is to try an actual DNA test. So I took one and my aunt and my mum's twin took one and we were stunned to discover that the twins had another, but this time paternal half-sister in a completely different and unknown family in the Midlands. Not only that, the newly discovered paternal half-sister's family lived less than 10 minutes away from the maternal half-sister. It's getting a bit confusing, but essentially thought it was one guy, not that guy. Turns out that actually... the relatives live really close to the other relatives. Piecing the story together now, it seems that the twins were the result of a once-off encounter sometime in May 1942. Good time to uh, to, to get conceived. Even though Paddy Moynihan insisted that he was not the father, he followed the mother Josie to England and even offered to marry her. She refused, never revealing the identity of the father and taking the secret to her grave. Even her own husband, who had wanted to help her bring the twins to England, went to his grave believing that Paddy Moynihan was the twins' natural father. A family myth is a powerful thing, as is DNA. By the way, uh, Paul says, I haven't found out whatever happened to Paddy Moynihan or even if Patrick was his first or middle name, except for him being mentioned in a court report in The Brave People in the 1940s. It reported the case of a collision between some cyclists on the winding road, AK-21 Benz, that leads into Enniscary Village. I know the one, actually. I've almost absolutely clattered myself on that road. It gave a long-gone address for him on the Ballybock Road in North Dublin. When I searched the consensus, the census for his compatriots, I found them all living close to Josie's address in Dublin. Um, in the 1940s, with the ban on cars and petrol rationing during the emergency, cycling clubs became very popular. We know from Mum's cousin that Paddy and Josie were both keen cyclists and would often go on large group excursions out of the city to places like Enniskenny, Scary, Luke and Port Marnock and even as far as Drada. If anyone recognises any part of this story or think they might have information on Paddy Moynihan, please send it to Paul O'Connor. He's given us his email address. We won't call that out, but you email us, we'll email you the address and you can get in touch. Amazing story, isn't it? You know, my own mum and um, uh, my wife, they both have fascinating stories of these just amazing things that happened and secrets that were kept and so on. It's I, I would be surprised if every large family hadn't had one story of something like that. But just it was what was done, wasn't it? Mark Grenier said, uh, very interested in this story. I'm a writer and photographer trying to trace my Canadian soldier father for many years. I wrote about him and my mum here. And actually, uh, Mark is Irish and um, he wrote a beautiful poem uh, about wondering who his father is. I won't read it to you for for time's sake, but do, do check out the um, the blog. Um, it will tweet about, we'll retweet it. So have a look on our Twitter page and we'll retweet it there. Um, but he wrote a re- this re- really beautiful poem about trying to find his father. And it's just very clear that um, not knowing where you're from can, can uh, be a really big deal to people, not knowing who your father or who your mother is, which is why we thought this story would, was was really lovely. Um, Declan says lovely story about Elise and Calm very heartwarming 
And Kerry said, incredibly uplifting story. A news talk should promote the piece further. It, brings, it could bring a lot of joy to people. News talk science smashed it out of the park. Well, thanks very much for that, Kerry. Um, I love the way you just roll over the fact that that contributor is, or that texter's name was Kerry Grant. And had no, a picture of Kerry Grant. Actually, oh, well, well, I don't think <laughs> well, it actually was Kerry. I think it was probably a pseudonym. So I just shortened it to Kerry. Well, by my like parents' deduction, not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was saying it's it's obviously not Cary Grant. Um, Disappointing. Uh, in response to that, uh, someone said, "Good feel, good story," and she gets the bonus of getting an Irish passport. Hadn't thought of that, but yes, surely, surely she would, would she? Yeah, she definitely would. Yeah, it's, it goes. But how as do you do that? How do you prove that you're the dad then? Yeah, I mean, like you, you're probably going to go look. See on ancestry.com. <laughs> like, how no, you... what the DNA test would be enough to to who? But who do you who do you, who do you give that information to? That is a good Passport question. Passport office, probably. Yeah, foreign affairs. Yeah. I don't know. We were also talking about drying clothes and what happens when you dry your clothes because obviously the the water in them doesn't boil, but they get dry after time. What's going on? Shane told us that they figured it out, but didn't quite tell us what, what actually happens because it's complicated. Which we let him off because, yep. in fairness, sometimes it is complicated and it just takes too long to explain. Although if our listeners are really curious about it, we did a few years back do a mm. uh, faster proof, a small piece on on that, which basically explained the basic physics, not yeah. the kind of new discovery. So if you want to go back through the... Uh, former podcast it's faster proof is the episode that you can find that on um fiona lee he says i dry my towels on the line or drying rack when they're almost dry and stiff i put them in the tumble dryer with semi-dry other clothes as the dampness from the wetter clothes transfers to the towels and softens them and the wetter clothes dry quicker sounds like it's either genius or nonsense fiona and i have to say i don't know which it is well I hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Chapeau to producer Aidan McKelvey, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt and Jojo Cardozo is on sound. Matthew O'Regan, who is also helping out this week. We'll be back on Tuesday with more in your podcast feed. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.